Thank you for listening to this audio recording from the pastoral team at Church of the Redeemer, an Anglican church in Greensboro, North Carolina. If you'd like to know more about Church of the Redeemer, its ministry, or its mission, then visit us online at RedeemerGSO.org. Well, good morning. Welcome again to Church of the Redeemer. My name is Jason Myers, and I'm really excited to be with you uh, this morning as we continue uh, in a series that we've been in for a few weeks now called Sent Out, where we've been looking at uh, some of the stories in Acts. And today we're going to look at one of the more famous stories of Paul in Athens. Uh, but before I do that, I want to begin with a question. Uh, have you ever been on a flight um, on a way to your destination and received some of the worst news when you get off the plane uh, that your connecting flight has been canceled? Right? You look at the big screen with the orange letters and you're looking for your flight for the gate, and it's got the canceled, and you go, oh, man. This happened to me uh, a few years ago, and I was, was supposed to be leaving Chicago to go to Liberia, and I thought, okay, I'm going to have a lot to do. And so I had about 12 hours or so. And so if you're like me, one of the things I like to do is take the subway and kind of go down into a city that I'm in and kind of take advantage uh, of the opportunity, right? Uh, and so I was in Chicago, and so I took the train, uh, down to Michigan Avenue and got off and went to places like Shedd's Aquarium. Um, I went around um, kind of some shopping areas, got some coffee, obviously. Because uh, when I'm in a city, I look for three things, coffee, tacos, and ice cream. Um, got to judge a city by those things. Um, and so that's what I did. And if I had more time, I probably would have made my way up to Wrigley Field and watched the Cubs lose um, and done something fun, but I didn't have that much time. Um, but since you have a layover, you take time uh, to explore the city, to see what that city's known for, to see their sights. Um, and when we look at Paul today in this chapter, uh, we may not think about it this way, but we actually meet Paul as well uh, on a layover. Uh, the reason I say that is take a look at Acts 17, verse 14. It says, then the believers immediately sent Paul away to the coast, but Silas and Timothy remained behind. Luke goes on to say that those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving instructions to have Silas and Timothy join him as soon as possible, they left him. And in the final verse here, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens. You see, when we meet Paul, we meet him on a layover of sorts. Paul had never really meant to go to Athens. Remember from last week, he gets kicked out of Thessalonica, makes it to Berea. The trouble finds him in Berea, and he's moving south in Greece. Uh, but this is where Paul is at now. He's in Athens, and he's waiting for Timothy and Silas to meet him. And so having some time to pass, Paul does like what I think many of us would do, and decides to make the most of the layover and see the sights of Athens. And oh, the things he begins to see. And this is where our sermon really begins today. You see, Paul was a traveling missionary, and he would usually walk or get on a boat uh, to go from city to city preaching the gospel. And it was about 100 miles from Thessalonica uh, to Athens. And as you've maybe seen so far in the past couple of weeks in Acts, whenever Paul gets to a new place, he typically goes to the synagogue first to debate with his Jewish contemporaries about the Messiah. And then after that, he goes into what's known as the Agora, which was the ancient city marketplace. Think like Friendly Center, right? This is where people kind of uh, gather here. And so the Agora was placed for various shops and artisans, textiles, and most importantly, food. Um, and this is as close as we might get to a first century mall in the ancient world. 
But also in the Agora, as we see today, you'd find other traveling teachers. These were known as philosophers. And they'd be standing on street corners doing kind of the exact same thing Paul would be doing. They'd be teaching in public, seeking to gain adherents, disciples, students for their various movements. And so general passerbys would just um, listen in on their teaching as the philosophers aimed to promote their message. But also around the Agora, as we see today, you'd have temples and idols to various uh, deities and places to worship. And so Luke mentions in verses 17 and 18 that every day Paul was in this agora, in this marketplace, teaching. Uh, and here in Athens, as we just heard read, Paul is debating with two really important philosophical groups in the ancient world. These are the Epicureans and the Stoics, and I'll spare you uh, the philosophy lesson from your intro to philosophy class. But they were debating for a few reasons. For one, they're all in the same place. They're looking at one another across the street. Second, they're all going for the same crowd. They're all trying to make disciples of their way of life. Because you see, you go to the Agora to, tr to attract people. That's where the people are, so that's where you set up shop. And so Paul is in competition when we meet him on this street corner. Uh, it doesn't go well. Look what they say to Paul in verse 18. They kind of slam him a little bit. They say, what does this babbler want to say? Others said he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign divinities. They, they call Paul a babbler, which is this term about someone who would just talk and talk and not shut up. Sometimes maybe how you feel about a Sunday morning sermon. Um, but the term babbler actually was a little bit more meaner than I think you would uh, want us to feel about that. Um, and that it meant a scavenger or bottom feeder. It referred to someone who kind of picked up ideas, but they were half-baked. They hadn't really thought through them. They, act, they lacked any deep knowledge of the subject. They were a lightweight, in other words. And so the philosophers are saying, Paul doesn't really know what he's talking about. He's just throwing out fancy terms and hoping that they stick so that he can get some people and take their money. Uh, but some others in the crowd note that this message sounds a little peculiar, a little strange. And they say that Paul is preaching strange or foreign gods, divinities. And Luke tells us that what Paul had been preaching and teaching about in the Agora was about a dead Jewish guy who had come back to life. Jesus and the resurrection. And this would be a pretty strange message in the first century for a bunch of Greeks. Because most people were thinking that the material world was bad and something to be escaped from. Your body's a prison. You don't really want it. This world, this earth is corrupted and decaying and it's going to all pass away. Um, that's what they think of when they think of the physical world. And so the idea of resurrection, that you would get a physical dead body to come back to life, was disdained throughout the ancient world. You're working in the wrong direction. We're trying to leave our bodies, and you're telling us the bodies are coming, coming back. You see, the ancients disdained this idea. They thought once you died, the body decays, right? You don't need modern science to tell you that dead people don't come back to life. Any graveyard tells that story. It wasn't every Tuesday that they saw people sprouting up out of the graveyards in the Agora, right? So Paul's message about a dead guy getting his body back would not be an idea that many would really want to entertain. And that's what's so strange about this idea to them. And so the philosophers take Paul and they bring him to a place in the city of Athens. This is a shot from Athens. You can get it from Google Images. Um, and they take him to a place called the Areopagus. On this next photo, 
The Areopagus was this small hill that you can see there in front of the Acropolis. And now the Acropolis housed several temples. There was a temple to the Roman emperor, worship of the emperor in the first century, a temple to the goddess of victory. You might know her by her more common name, Nike, and the Parthenon, which was a massive temple uh, to Athena. These are some of the famous sites that Paul looks at. And inside um, here, there was a big statue to the goddess Athena with a huge bronze statue. And these elements to our story are going to become important in just a little bit. And so the Athenians take Paul to the Areopagus and they ask him a question. They say, what is this new teaching that you're promoting? And the strange message of Paul is also pretty dangerous. And we might miss this because we're not first century Athenians. But there was a famous story in the ancient world related to the philosopher Socrates, who was put on trial and ultimately condemned to death for bringing in, quote, new and foreign deities into Athens. And so when the philosophers charged Paul with foreign deities coming into Athens, that's not, a, that's not a light charge. That's led to the death of someone before. And so the philosophers charged Paul with this. And it's not just their curiosity that's driving this conversation. In fact, in some ways, this is a pretrial. They want to know, what are you talking about? Because we want to find out whether some people higher up need to take this more seriously than we are. And so the stakes are actually pretty high at the moment. Paul has got his back up against the wall in some ways. And so I want to put that picture of the Areopagus back up on the screen as I read this part of the sermon. You want to picture Paul standing here on that rocky outcrop saying these words with this image in the background. He says, Athenians, I see how extremely religious you are in every way. For as I went through the city and looked carefully at the objects of your worship, I found among them an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I make known to you. Now it's this part of the story where if you've heard Acts 17 before, you may think you know what's going on. If you haven't heard the story of Acts 17, that's completely okay. But one of the main ways this passage is understood is that Paul arrives in Athens, he debates with some philosophers, he wins a few of them over, and they live happily ever after. Typically, many approach this passage in a really positive light to show how Paul engages the culture uh, around him, trying to find common ground and that this should be a model for us as well. And that may be partially true, but I think Luke wants to, to see something more is going on in this passage. So one of the things we miss sometimes is that the world of the Bible is a different culture, and cross-cultural communication is often difficult because we just have different ways of thinking and talking and different references. Um, as some of you know, I just returned from England uh, a few weeks ago. I've been traveling over to England for the last few years to do some teaching and some research, and I just got back uh, from a recent trip. And I'm always struck by the fact that we share a common language uh, together common language of English, right? Same words, but sometimes entirely different meanings. At times, our English couldn't be more different. Have you ever noticed this? This is as simple as things like French fries being called chips and sweaters being called jumpers. Um, those things can be pretty easy to adapt to. You just go, oh yeah, I'm ordering a burger. I need some chips with it. Got it. Cool. Uh, 
But there's some bigger issues too, some of them cultural. In fact, a few years ago, a friend of mine sent me this helpful chart for how British people speak to American people and what we hear versus what they mean. This happens at conferences, this happens in everyday dialogue. And this chart showed what Americans hear versus what British people mean. I have a few on the, on the screen. For example, if a British person says to you, very interesting, Americans hear, they are super impressed with what I'm talking about. But what they really mean is that, nah, this is nonsense. Please stop talking. But again, you're going to walk away from that conversation going, they like me. Uh, the next one, this is a very brave proposal, right? Americans hear they like my proposal and they think it's courageous. British people mean that proposal is insane and will never work. Uh, and we each go about right, our own ways. Uh, one more, you must come for dinner. An invitation is coming soon. Uh, it's not an invitation, just being polite. <laughs> Don't be waiting around your mailbox because it's not going to be coming. And so just take that, for example. We share a common language, yet we can confuse the meaning. Now, it's not just England either. I'm going to be equal opportunity critiquer here. Quick show of hands, how many of you were not born or raised here in North Carolina? My hand is up as well. Great. Okay, I'm with you. I moved here seven years ago. Hard to believe, I know. Um, and maybe you've recently moved too. If you have, you've probably already come across a phrase that sounds like a compliment but really is anything but that, right? You all know the phrase, it is? There we go. Now, what's funny about this phrase is what it means, not what is said, right? But you have to be in on the phrase to know that when you receive it, someone is not complimenting you. But if you don't, you might walk away and think, wow, that person really likes me. They want me to be blessed. I love this. This is great. Not so much, right? Knowing the context is key to understanding the phrase. Phrases can mean two things at the same time. So why do I bring up England and North Carolina to talk to you about Acts 17? You might be wondering that. Uh, what do they have to do with one another? Well, actually, we have a really similar idea going on here in the passage, too, that we can read as the theological equivalent of bless your heart. Take a look at verse 22. Athenians said, I see how extremely religious you are in every way. This phrase, extremely religious, can be translated and taken one of two ways. And we think that Luke is playing with this idea here. You see, one option is that it, very religious can be positive, right? You're really devout. You're really you know, faithful to your religions. But the other way to translate it is superstitious, that you're not faithful. You're just superstitious. You are just scared of everything around you. And so this term that, that Paul uses here um, is saying that he might not be congratulating them at all. Now, I think the Athenians in the story take it as a compliment. They go, well, thank you. We are very religious. But as readers of the story, we know that Luke may be critiquing them. We don't think that Luke is a big fan of, of, of idols. Why do we think it's a critique? Why should extremely religious be the theological equivalent of bless your heart? Well, notice how Paul responds when he gets to Athens, back in verse 17. Luke tells us that Paul was deeply distressed. The story starts off with Paul being distressed at what he sees. And this word only appears two times in the New Testament. But what's fascinating is that in the Old Testament, over 50 times, this term is used for God's extreme anger 
at idolatry. It is a distressing moment to see this many idols because idols deform and, and destroy things. And so what we see here is it seems that it's unlikely that Paul might be in the best of moods when he arrives in Athens. Not only is he on the layover, when he gets there, he sees something that is deeply, deeply unsettling to him. And so what Paul wants to do, though, is he wants to have a conversation about the Athenians' gods and about what God is like. There were lots of gods in the ancient world, some good and a lot not so good. The gods of the ancient world couldn't be trusted. They were very vindictive. They didn't behave among themselves. They were always angry at humanity. They fought with one another. And there were so many gods for so many things. In fact, in today's story, we see that there's an altar to the unknown god, just in case they had forgotten about one. Because here's the thing. In the ancient world, if you forget about a god, well, that god forgets about you. And if that god forgets about you, your life goes very, very poorly. For example, let's say you forgot about Poseidon, the god of sea travel and you get on a boat, and your boat gets shipwrecked, well, guess what happened? You made Poseidon mad, and he took it out on you. His wrath was exposed against you, and your life tanked for that reason. If you forgot about God, it's your fault. The Athenians here in this story are really just covering all their bases. Let, to just be safe, let's just make a statue to the gods that we forgot about. And Paul's first point in the story is at the heart of both Judaism and Christianity. Christianity is a public faith, not a secret faith. At the center of a Christian faith is a God who makes himself known to us, who reaches out to us to talk, to communicate, to tell us something about himself. And God reveals himself in history and through scripture. And as we'll see in a moment, it's because God desires to be found that God is not hiding. God is not hiding from you. He wants to meet you. And I think as we pause here for a moment, how we picture God is really, really important. As we read a little bit in the Genesis 2 account this morning, we believe that we are created in God's image, that we reflect a picture of who God is to the world together. And so if your God is mean, nasty, angry, vengeful, well then chances are you're going to be mean, nasty, angry, and vengeful. But what if God was different? What if this God could be known? What would he be like? And this is where Paul's sermon really takes off. Let me tell you about the God that you don't know about. Paul continues on that this God can be known, and he is not one who is made, but one who gives life to all. Look at verse 25. He is not served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mortals life and breath in all things. Paul says that the very heart of God is a God who is knowable and a God who gives. This is not a needy God, but a God who gives out of his abundance to his creation. And so what if God isn't needy like us? We have wants and desires and needs, many of them valuable. But what if that's not what God is like? What if God isn't needy like us? What if he is rather a giver, a one who gives us all things? What if God isn't meant to be a drain on us, but a source of life? And Christians, as, as Christians, we affirm that we do not serve a God who is lonely, needy, or bored. He isn't just looking for something to do on a Sunday morning. But rather, we, we serve a God who out of his fullness, out of his overflow, 
gives gifts to his children. And this would be both a refreshing and a very challenging message in the first century, and perhaps in ours, ours as well. How do we picture God? What's the image? What's the reaction that we get when we mention God? What we see here is that if God can be known, what would he be like? Follow-up question, what if there's a God? What if he's able to be known? And what if he's a God who gives rather than a God who takes? Paul's message to the Athenians continues on. Take a look at verse 26. Not only is this a God that can be known, and not only is this a God who gives, but this is a God who wants to be found. From one ancestor, he made all nations to inhabit the whole earth. And he allotted the times of their existence and the boundaries of the places where they would live so that they would search for God and perhaps grope for him and find him, though indeed he is not far from each one of us. You see, this is not a God who is remote or far off, but a God who is near, who cares, and can be found. So what if God could be known? And what, about, what if the more we found out about him, the more we learned that he's a God who gives and takes care of us, and a God who cares about our needs and about us as, as his creation. And what if this is a God who not only cares, but a God who isn't made by us? Take a look at verse 29. Since we are God's offspring, we ought not to think that the deity is like gold or silver or stone or an image formed by the art and imagination of mortals. Remember where Paul is standing. He's standing in front of the Acropolis in front of that Athena statue. And Paul is looking up at that hill and he's saying, God doesn't look like that. God isn't up on that hill. God is near you right now, the one that I'm proclaiming to you. And it's not just the Athenians. How does the world around us see God? How do you see God? Where are they looking? And where are we looking? Everyone's looking for someone or something known or unknown to provide. And our, modern, and our modern gods may not look like Athena, but do not be deceived. They are just as present and just as real. They demand sacrifices. We bow down and we worship gods not all too dissimilar from those in Athens. And it's destroying our lives. Paul goes on to say, The God that I'm proclaiming does not look like that God up on the hill, Here's what he looks like. And in verses 24 through 29, we won't read all of them, but what follows for Paul is classic Old Testament teaching. Fancy term, Jewish monotheism. God is a creator. God made the whole world and everything in it. Remember the charge. Paul is charged with bringing foreign deities into Athens, and he says, actually, I'm not proclaiming a new God at all. He turns the tables. He says, I'm proclaiming a very ancient God, the God that created everything that you see. Because God is a creator, he doesn't need a shrine or a temple or human offerings from humans since he is the creator, provider, and sustainer of all that is. And Paul's radical point here is not that humans sustain God, but it's that God sustains us. God is a giver and a carer of who we are. And what you'll find fascinating about this sermon that Paul is preaching is that he never explicitly mentions the Old Testament. He never says, hey, in Isaiah chapter 7, it says this, and Jeremiah 30, and Deuteronomy 19. He never does that. Because it wouldn't have made a large impact 
on the people he's speaking to who have never read Genesis. They've never read Isaiah. It's like a nice quote, but it doesn't mean anything to me. But Paul, what Paul's going to do is he's going to riff on the themes of the Old Testament. And what Paul does do is he actually interweaves some quotes from Greek and Roman poets, persons that the Athenians might have known. But he isn't necessarily doing this to uh, commend or affirm the Athenians or their poets. You see, Paul can use the poets of the Greco-Roman world, but then he can also turn them back on themselves and offer it as a critique of idols. You see, in approaching the Athenians, Paul isn't saying, you guys are so close to the truth, let's just add some Jesus in and you'll be fine. You're so almost there. He actually says the opposite. You're not close at all because he calls them to repent, to turn away from what they've been doing and to turn to this known God. He says the beliefs that you hold about God require repentance. Just like a prophet from the Old Testament, there's a call to turn from idols to the living and known God. Repent, Paul says, for this known God is going to judge the world through the person he raised from the dead, Jesus. Following Jesus is not a top-off or an add-on to an otherwise okay life. It's a complete and utter transformation. And that's just as true for the Athenians as it is for us. So often it's easy to say, you know, most everything's fine. I need Jesus over here to help me with these three things. But if I didn't have them, I mean, I'd be close. I think Paul's words are heightening that of saying, we're not close at all. We're actually running away from who God is. We need complete and utter transformation. Paul concludes his speech to the Athenians by informing him that the story about this God is not over, that resurrection has now unleashed a new and exciting chapter to this story. So where does this land for us? What do the Athenians in Acts 17 have to do with a people who are meant to be sent out, as our sermon series says? How are we sent out on mission with God to communicate these truths about God to a world around us? that need a good, caring, trustworthy, and knowable God. Because if it's a God who can be known and a God who gives and a God who cares, this is a God worth sharing. I think one big area is that if you haven't been paying attention to some of the recent statistics, the largest growing group in our world is the spiritual but not religious category. I don't want anything to do with an institution or a formalized church or a formalized Christianity, I'm spiritual. I'm just looking for things that are out there. That's a really close parallel to where the Athenians are. And Paul says, hey, I have some, I have some good news, and I got some news that's going to be challenging. There's a God that can be known, and he's trustworthy. Whatever experience of hurt and, and disappointment that you felt before, let me introduce you to this God who knows you and cares for you. I think another thing is actually perhaps a little bit more important for those of us sitting here. Because God is a God who can be known, a God who gives, and a God who cares, it shapes Paul's response to the Athenians. Paul is not a jerk. Paul is not a jerk. He doesn't bend on declaring the truth about God. Nowhere in the sermon does he give up one inch to idols. He calls for repentance, but he does so without all the brashness we might have expected him to do that with. Because such a posture of being a jerk 
would betray the very character of the God that he's proclaiming, a God who cares and a God who wants to be known. What do you say to those that are radically different than you? What do you say to those whose religions and rituals you have been trained to loathe? This is the scandalous, unnerving aspect of God's grace. God desires the people we despise. Paul grapples with this profound call in his life to be an apostle to the Gentiles and reveal to them this incredible love of God to a people that are vastly different than the way Paul was brought up. Vastly different ways of life. In fact, I think one of the greatest transformations we see in this passage is of Paul himself. If you remember, Luke says that Paul was deeply upset by what he saw in Athens. Deeply disturbed. Paul has been angry before in the book of Acts. If you know the story, in fact, the first time we meet him, he's so angry that he's standing over the murder of Stephen. His anger at what he didn't agree with led him to murder in Acts 7. But now in Acts 17, it is transformed by the love of Jesus and the example of Jesus. And in the power of the Spirit, he responds not in violence, but in invitation. Paul reaches out to people who could not be more different than him, Gentiles who worship idols. But this is what the gospel demands, a reaching out towards others. Paul models the activity of God himself by not turning away from idol worshipers, but turning toward them with a gracious message. As I look around today, so much of Christian witness these days seems vitriolic and bears very little resemblance to the person of Jesus Christ. It's about scoring points. It's about defeating perceived enemies. It's about besting others in triumph. Paul doesn't do any of that here. He is firm on his beliefs. Of course he is. He doesn't give up one inch to idols. But he doesn't humiliate and he doesn't attack. The growth of Christianity will not come through being a jerk. Based on what I see, many Christians have taken up the very tools of the world to bully, belittle, and mock those that they don't agree with. And such is a betrayal of the character of the God who sends us, the God who gives, and the God who cares. And no wonder very few want to know this God. Friends, this is not the way of the kingdom. In the public square today, we need far more Christians who are able to offer a firm but gracious invitation to the kingdom. And Paul models that for us. We can be radically different, but radically gracious. And that's a tradition we need to reinvestigate. In conclusion, may we, like Paul, be sent out in God's radical grace to unmask idols, but also to reveal a God who can be known, a God who gives, and a God who cares. May our witness be faithful to the character of Jesus who has sent us. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.